Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin. Teos Abadia is off on a worldwide tour of Italy, apparently, and will be gone maybe, well, definitely this week and probably next week. So we're bringing in the big guns now. We are bringing in this week, none other than Scott Fitzgerald Gray. Hey, Scott, how's it going? Uh, it's going very well. You just you you set me up for failure with 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 that kind of an introduction. It's oh, good. it's a it's okay. We we will uh, we will count on you to carry the show just as Teos carries the show <laughs> uh, when when the gray matter here and this big fat head that rests atop my shoulders go uh, go haywire. Some big some big Teo sized shoes to fill today. Exactly, I'll, exactly. I'll do my best. He's a size nine, so I think you're going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all. Please, I know you've been on the show before, yes. and I know that we've mentioned you on the show before, but for folks out there who may not know who you are and what you do in the industry, could you give us a bit of a rundown? I honestly have very little idea. I, I know that you know me, so I was hoping you would be able to <laughs> fill some stuff in today. But um, uh, based on the research that I have done, uh, yes, my name is Scott Gray. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. I live in a little quiet corner of Western Canada, and um, the reason that I'm here, and probably the reason most people would have any interest in anything I have to say, is for the last 18 years, uh, it's been my extraordinarily pr- extraordinary privilege to have worked on Dungeons & Dragons. Mm-hmm. So what was the first product for Wizards of the Coast that you remember working on? Uh, the first product that I worked on for Wizards of the Coast was the book Complete Arcane. This was in 3.5. Okay. And, uh, I and, just, uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, just worked on a bunch of 3.5 stuff, continued to work through fourth edition, worked on D&D Next, and have worked on a big chunk of uh, stuff for fifth edition. So you, I, I like to tell people when I mention your name, uh, if you have bought a D&D book since Complete Arcane came out and you <laughs> open it, there's probably a 50-50 chance, if not better, that the name Scott Fitzgerald Gray is in there, most likely under editing, but quite possibly under d- design or development as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely most under editing. I've I've, I've worked on a very small number of projects uh, for Wizards as a designer, but yeah, I think I mean that's it, as as ridiculous as it sounds even to me. I think that number is probably pretty accurate. I actually had to. I was. I think when I was on the show with Teos before, he mentioned, he said, you know, working on more than half of the stuff for 5e. And I thought that can't possibly be true. So I actually went and counted and it is actually true. I think Uh there's, I I, I was just looking at this the other day. I think there's, if you count up to the books that have been announced, so sort of up to the Dragonlance book, uh, Mm -hmm. I think Wizards has put out 40 or 42 hardcovers since 5e started. I've worked on, and, and this includes the, Upcoming, but not out yet, uh, Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. I've worked on 25 of them. Okay. So which is, 50, which is, yeah. 50% was a little bit low, but, <laughs> you know, we, we, uh, we try to be accurate here. Yeah. So uh, with, with that in mind, that is one of the several reasons why you were the first person I turned to to come onto the show. Uh, because not only, you know, do you have a, a, a view of the history of the game, being a player, I assume, since the early, early days. 1981. Okay. 19, 1980, actually. Sorry. End of, yep. Tail end of 1980. So, so you've had a history of as a player and then m- more recently, uh, you know, a, a great view of what the game is and what the game, ha- you know, is, has become and what may 
morph into as we go forward with with yeah. all your experience. Uh, we're going to do our normal show. Uh, so we're going to have some news and, and commentary, and then we're going to jump into a main topic. But I, I wanted you specifically if to answer this one question. Sure. If you had any tips for game designers who are looking to publish, you know, as with your experience as an editor, right. what would those like one or two main tips be? Yeah. Um, I guess the, the snarky response is just, you know, keep, don't, don't worry too much about this because I need the work, frankly, <laughs> you know, so, you know, typos. Yeah. Don't worry about that. It's fine. Um, <laughs> the more, the more useful answer, I guess it, it, it really depends on the circumstances. If you're publishing something yourself versus if you're working for someone else, if you have a company that reaches out to you, says they'd like to write something. Um, if you're doing things yourself, the, and this has been talked about many, many times, you're going to end up wearing a lot of hats. So as a designer, you need to already be thinking like an editor. As a designer, you might already be thinking like a layout person. Even if you're not doing that yourself, you, you want to try to be cognizant of the whole process of what's going into, like uh, how your work is going to go from the, from the first stage, the one you're working at, to the final stage. Mm-hmm. If you're working on a book for someone else, it's a little bit more straightforward because you're typically just focusing on what you're doing. And the one piece of advice that I think I would give there is be aware all the time that you're part of a team and don't be afraid to reach out to other people to talk about what you're doing, right? I know from experience, my own experience, and from talking to many other people about their experiences, there's a huge pressure when you're doing a design assignment or a writing assignment for a game, especially if it's one of your first assignments, you're just kind of starting out, just, you know, trying to see, you know, uh, getting your feet um, to try to just do everything without revealing to anyone else that you're not really sure about what you're doing. And this, in my view, is a bad idea. Uh, even though it's absolutely instinctive and everybody does it, reach out to people. Talk to you know your lead designer, talk to your publisher, talk to your editor if you have access to the person who's going to be editing after the fact, and just ask them about you know this is what I'm thinking of doing. Is that what you're looking for? Is that going to be okay? Yeah. Right. Uh, ask if you can show people interim drafts. Like I've got a first, like a rough draft of this one section done. I would love your if you've got a minute to just look at it and just you know give me some some feedback. Right. Reach out to people and ask those questions. I've never had the experience of hearing from anybody working with somebody uh, talking about a designer saying, you know, God, this person was so difficult to work with. They just kept asking me questions all the time. <laughs> right. I've never like like I've, yeah, literally have never heard that. It's true. Right? I have That's often true. heard from people. You know, this person did a great writing. You know, their writing is great, but they really, they didn't quite hit what we were trying, what we really wanted them to hit. Yeah. And they never asked about it. We didn't have a chance to help them fix that. Right. Awesome. So that's one thing. Def- definitely do that. Uh, the other thing I would say, so this is probably almost as important, is when you're working, especially if this is a freelance thing, and if you're doing it on top of your day job or your other freelance stuff, give yourself the time you need to work on something. And this is advice that I, lots of people give, and I give it to lots of people. Make sure you've got the time that you need. Like if your deadline for something is a Friday, you don't want to be writing the last words of that at fr- on, on, on Friday night at 1030. Right. Yeah, you want to have ideally finished it the previous Friday. So you give yourself some time to let it sit, come back to it, do a last pass through it, look for stuff that you maybe missed, polish up a few things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's the toughest part for a lot of people because I know many, many people do this as a sideline. Everybody has a full life and then they do this in their free time and on the weekends and that sort of thing. But as much as possible, 
if you can give yourself as much time as you need to work on something properly. So you're not rushing. So you're not getting stuck cramming things in right before deadline. Uh, your work will be better for it and people's reaction to your work will be better for it as well. Those are, those are some great answers. Uh, the reason I ask is because I get the question a lot. So I'm just going to steal your answer from now on. So, so, thank, you. so, so thank you for that. You've just uh, raised my intelligent IQ, like at least a couple of points. Yeah. Uh, awesome. So with that, we are now going to get into a little bit of news. We're going to keep the news light, light and fluffy this week. Uh, well, kind of, kind of light and fluffy, except for the last thing we're going to talk about, which we're yeah. going to get into like global geopolitics. But anyway, uh, so our first news item here is the D&D is highlighting Vecna with a new dossier on D&D Beyond relating to the Stranger Things stream. So first of all, on June 9th, Netflix streamed a previously recorded game featuring four of the Stranger Things cast and DMB Dave Walters. There's a YouTube link in our show notes, but you know they go through and they play uh, sort of the characters that they were playing on the on the series, and Dave runs them through a Vecna themed uh, adventure. With the understanding now, we're going to have a few light spoilers here for Stranger Things. Vecna plays a large role in the new season of Stranger Things. So on D and D Beyond, we got the Vecna dossier. This is a short supplement that gives some new art and uh, lots of lots of information or a good amount of information on the history of Vecna, talking about his uh, foundation in Greyhawk lore and comic books, his creation of the Book of Vile Darkness, the betrayal by Kaz, and, uh, and, and that theme. We also get a stat block that provide, it has provided that shows Vecna in all his pre-eye and hand losing glory. Uh, <laughs> so that is available on D&D Beyond for free, as long as you have an account, as well as in the blog on D&D Beyond, a short 20th level adventure that features Vecna. So this has been going around now because people are looking at this not only as fans of D&D and who, what did they do with Vecna? But also in terms of design, what direction might they be moving as we continue to wait for news to drop on 5.5 or 6th edition or whatever they're going to call this new version that they promised in a couple of years? Yeah, there were there were a couple of things in the stat block that certainly the the two things that I've seen people talking about the most is one, the look of the illustration, which a lot of people are like, oh, this is very cool. His spell book is in his ribcage kind of thing. Right. And a lot of people are like, yeah, this isn't, you know, sort of, you know, hashtag not my Vecna uh, yeah. for, for a lot of <laughs> folks, I think. But yeah. um, as far as the mechanics go, there's a couple of interesting things in the stat block. The probably the most, the one that most people are talking about is the, there's a dread counterspell reaction, mm-hmm. which allows Vecna to counterspell but he's not casting the counterspell spell. So this counterspell cannot be counterspelled. Mm-hmm. And he has three reactions per round. Right. Which is, I mean, I, 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 may, I might be wrong about this. Is there any other creature that we've seen in D&D so far that has multiple reactions? Because it struck me as this is something pretty new. I, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that's been in the official Wizards of the Coast yeah. uh, products. I, I, I I feel like I've seen some monster, maybe it was one with two heads that 
that oh, got yeah, like yeah. two one monsters that have two turns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Single monsters that have two turns per round. Right. Yeah. Uh, but sure. other, other than that, and, and even then it was only like it can take two opportunity attacks, mm-hmm. you know, not two re- full reactions with a very specific reaction. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the Dread Counterspell was fun. So that's uh, that adds even more fuel to the fire of people who are upset by uh, spells being moved into abilities and therefore are not spells anymore that can't be yeah. counterspelled. Uh, personally, I love it. I love the uh, the ability to do this thing, and not only that, but it damages the person who gets counterspelled. Yes, uh, it, it's not a lot of damage. Uh, probably doesn't make a heck of a lot of. Yeah. But but yeah, that for me that that screams vector. That screams uh, this this being that became a god. Yeah. And is yeah. so steeped in magic. Yeah, ma- master of magic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, there's there's lore in Vecna's history beyond what was written in this article that that he was um, tutored, if you will, by this voice in his head. Mm-hmm. And it was called the Serpent in in certain parts of Greyhawk lore, and the the, the speculation has been or was back in the day, what is the serpent? You know, is it a God who was trying to make Vecna its Lieutenant, but then Mm -hmm. Vecna transcended even that, that God, or, you know, was it magic itself was talking to him, you know, all all these, all the speculation. So I think it's, it's really neat. And I would love to see more uh, of that. We get uh, Vecna gets five legendary resistances per day. Mm-hmm. Another cool thing, I would change this, but I thought it was cool. He uh, Vecna's a lich, so he has the undying quality. If you kill Vecna, his body reforms in 1D100 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you may see him again. You may not. It's, but, it's a long time to wait for a rematch in some campaigns. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. would be like, yeah, I, I would want, I would want to show him to show up again in the campaign. Yeah. So obviously, as a DM, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, but that was that was just sort of funny. Oh, look, double zero. Oh well, <laughs> maybe your great great grandchildren will be able to fight Vecna. Uh, but there's also uh, that you know they they give all the stats um, with any monster of this CR, which is CR twenty six. Depending on the party you have at the table, this could be a really, really horrible drag, you know, knockdown, drag out fight. Mm. Or Vecna could be dead in two rounds, yeah. uh, d- d- depending on the the strength of the party and the build and how much magic items they have and so on. One of the things that the, the stat block says is, oh, by the way, Vecna has the Book of Vile Darkness, which in artifact he created. So use the powers that that book also gives you as an artifact, as a relic. And so, you know, add some things to that. And I was thinking, hmm, how could we, what, what could be fun with this? And I noticed that one of the major abilities that an artifact can have is casting a seventh level spell as a major property. And I'm like, hmm, simulacrum? Two vectors? <laughs> Let's do that. This is, uh, this, is why, this is why people love and hate you, Sean. Yeah, but I, I'm like, you know, players come to the table you know, with their simulacrum. They're, they're, oh, look, five players. How many of you have simulacra? Only four of you? 
what's wrong with you, Dave? Why, why don't you have a Sabulaka too? You're not even a wizard and somehow you have it. So I thought, yeah, that'd be fun. You know, that, that could step step the game up a bit. That could be uh, nice. Yeah. yeah, and I took a quick spin through the 20th level adventure. Uh, it's, it's you know, it's reasonable. It's it's yeah. pretty cool. Uh, the, the story is it takes place on the plane of Limbo. These three sages were delving into Vecna's lore and trying to learn Vecna's secrets. So Vecna got a little perturbed and dragged their whole mage tower into limbo and then started doing bad things to the the sages. Uh, And as Scott notes here, there is a warning uh, about body horror, torture and dismemberment. Yeah, if this if this is something you're thinking of playing, definitely, definitely give it a read first and make yeah. sure you know think about whether your group is going to be okay with it. Have a you know talk about it in a session zero, perhaps. Yep. But uh, also worth mentioning again that this is on the D and D Beyond blog, which I'll mm-hmm. say because I actually couldn't find it at first. Um, at least the last time I checked, I don't think it's linked from the main Vecna page where you get the stat block, which is yep. maybe maybe an oversight. But yeah. So obviously, this is unofficial content. Unofficial content in the sense that it's called unofficial content, but it is through D&D Beyond, which is now Wizards of the Coast. Yeah. So it is official content in that context. That, that line's going to get real blurred in yeah. the future, I'm pretty sure. I am yeah. fairly sure as well. Yeah. But you know, after reading that stat block and reading the adventure, it's just, I want to run this. I want, you know, I want to grab my group and I want them to make 20th level characters. And I want to run it just to see how it goes. Uh, and I hope a lot of people have too. And if you do, you know, tag us on Twitter or come to our webpage or, uh, you know, on YouTube or wherever and let us know how it went. So the next bit of news is the Unearthed Arcana Giant Options Survey is now live. Uh, we reviewed this Unearthed Arcana article a couple episodes ago. We talked it through, Teos and I, and now you have your chance to tell Wizards of the Coast what you think. We have a link in the show notes to let you give your feedback on those subclasses and those feats. Uh, next bit of news is Monty Cook Games. They have released a Cypher system open license. So uh, this open license will allow publishers or anyone else to freely create and market products that are compatible with their Cypher system rules. There will be a Cypher system reference document, a version of the game that lets the rules that they're going to release uh, be used, plus some other sources. They're going to launch the program this summer, but several groups have already been invited to work on titles using this open license. Uh, they gave examples on the website, which is montycookgames.com. And uh, what what did you think about this? Um, this it's, 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 it's very cool. But one thing about this was it actually caught me a bit by surprise because when I first read this, I thought, I thought we all, there already was a Cypher system open license because mm-hmm. I've heard about that and I've seen third-party stuff and dug in quickly and realized that, in fact, they, Monty Cook Games up until this point, I think for the last five or six years, they've had a Cypher system creator program where you can create stuff that's compatible through them. Uh, same, I guess uh, what they've got going now, I think would be akin to the DMs Guild where mm-hmm. you're publishing sort of through the original publisher. Gotcha. What they're doing here seems like a big step up, opening right. it up to a much wider, to a much wider uh, t- uh, creative field, uh, giving yeah. people lots more opportunities to do stuff with the system, which I think is really, really cool. Yep. Yep. So we'll see if the Cypher system 
uh, catches on in terms of creators and what people are, are able to do with it. Yeah. Uh, the last bit of news uh, was an interesting article and I noticed it and I thought this might be cool to review and I put it aside. And so last night I went through and I read it and boy, do I have some things to talk about. Uh, <laughs> so we are going to get into lots of, lots of high level topics like socialism and capitalism and corporate behavior. Uh, but it was, a, it was an interesting article that yeah, I thought I thought I would think one thing, and when I finished it, I was thinking another. So this article is called D and D: A Case Study in How Capitalism Kills Art. Yeah. And when I when I before I read it, I made made the link, and I thought, okay, I'll go back and check it out. Then as I was reading it, I realized it was in a on a website called Jacobin.com or Jacobin.com, which is basically a socialist. Uh, view of society you know everything is gone through looked at through a socialist lens and i am no fan of of corporate greed and capitalism uh, run rampant so i was like okay cool let's see so what what this article does is it takes um the game wizards book by john peterson game wizards the epic battle for dungeons and dragons that gives a history of tsr and looks at it through uh, through sort of a, a socialist lens. And the blurb is, the story of Dungeons and Dragons isn't just about nerds creating a wildly popular game and then losing control of it. It's also about how the dictates of the free market inevitably end up stripping even our leisure activities of joy. Yeah. And, and I was like, okay, time out. Uh, <laughs> I, love, I love a good argument and I love looking at things through various lenses and getting everyone's opinion. But I also love sort of self-honesty. And, and if, if I'm honest, I'm like, hmm, so what have, I, what have I been feeling since like 1981? Yeah. Right. Is that, is it despair? You know, do I, have I spent like 20% of my life playing and working in this game and, and there's yeah. no joy in it for anyone? It's, been, it's um, been constant malaise for me, right from the right from the get go. Yeah, I have yeah. no idea why. I have no idea why I keep doing this. It's just yeah, terrible. exactly. We should just stop the recording right now. <laughs> so, so then I was like, okay, let's let's take a look. Let's let's see what the article has to say. So, uh, right away we start to get some pretty ridiculous claims. Yeah. Um, just I, I understand the thought behind it, right? We like to say that the business destroys fun. We like to, we like to, and sometimes it does, you know, sometimes corporate greed overwhelms something that otherwise would be great. But we have quotes like this. Uh, the results of TSR being bought by Wizards of the Coast has been predictable. D&D may be more popular than ever, but it's just another profit-making entity in a company flush with them. And the company will surely abandon the title the moment it starts to make a downturn to be bought by another company more interested in the value of the name than the worth of the game. Yeah. This one, that quote jumped out at me absolutely as well. And the thing that, the thing that struck me, I mean, I, I, I can't remember the name of the person who wrote the article. I bear them no ill will, but it seemed to me, this is, this is maybe a person who's into the game, you know, like D and D may be an important part of their life as it certainly is for me and many other people, but they demonstrated that they maybe don't are not as, as in touch as they should have been with what's actually been going on with the game from a business perspective. Because the thing that jumped out at me when I read that is that 
D&D up until very, very recently has not made a ton of money for Hasbro, right? right? Wizards of the Coast has made a ton of money for Hasbro, but traditionally mm -hmm. up until this, this late, you know, last few years, absolute zenith of fifth edition, Magic the Gathering has been the cash cow. Mm -hmm. Right. Magic the Gathering has been underwriting D&D at certain points in time, as right. many people who work on Magic, Magic will, will, will quietly complain about. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing that's funny is that that scenario that's described in that quote is exactly what has already happened right. during the very late stages of fourth edition when the game was starting to not sell anymore. Right. During the D&D Next playtest, where Wizards of the Coast basically was funneling money into D&D, they kept, you know, an entire company, right, going, paying people salaries, paying, you know, all the expenses for that to produce a game that they were not charging people money for. Yeah. Right? Uh, you know, it, it, at, from a business perspective, if, if, if Hasbro was an, was an absolute, you know, just just rock bottom profit line is all we care about selling off the D and D brand at that point in time would have been the absolute smartest thing they could have done. Yeah. If profit was their only goal, they would have offloaded it at that point. And, and, and we'd be living in a very different world right now right. as far as the game goes. So yeah, just, just, just so much of a disconnect between what, between what this article says and the way that D and D has actually evolved as a business, as a, as a product over, over many, many years. Yeah, it's 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 strange too, because Wizards of the Coast was bought by Hasbro, as as Scott said, for for Magic and also for Pokemon. You know, we forget that we forget <laughs> yes. that Wizards of the Coast had Pokemon at that point. Yes, and and that's an important part of why Hasbro bought Wizards of the Coast as well. And I've talked to many people, both in Wizards and, and on the periphery of Wizards, who have said that Hasbro from the start didn't really care about D and D they just sort of said, yeah, you go do your thing. We know that the brand is worth something. So we we're fine with you just continuing to make the game, you know, maybe don't overdo it, but yeah. just, just go, go do your thing. They've been very hands off with D and D that may be changing now that yes. the brand itself is, is worth much more than it was when wizards uh, was purchased by Hasbro. But it definitely hasn't been true up through the, the beginning of fifth edition. Um, uh, there, there's a couple other things that is just like the, the, the author is missing the point completely. It's already undergone reworkings designed to sell more products than to improve the game. It's flagship website. D and D beyond has introduced a suite of high-tech innovations to the, to the game to bring it into the internet era but it's also become notorious for extracting as much money from consumers as possible through usurious licensing and constant upselling. And my first thought was D&D Beyond literally just joined Wizards of the Coast like two weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, so all of this stuff that D&D Beyond has been doing has been a different company completely. Yes. Wizards has not been benefiting from that except for whatever licensing yes. agreement they have. So Maybe that's true within the last two weeks, but yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not true now. Yeah. And you know, a lot of content has been given away through yeah. D&D Beyond as this Vecna article and, and uh, adventure are showing. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't imagine that. And, and to say that you know, the whole reworkings have been to sell more products. Well, yes, 
most things that we do, if we're yeah. doing it as a business, we redo to sell more products. Yeah, I, th- I think there's there's two angles there, um, which which kind of work against each other. On the one hand, a site like D&D Beyond is absolutely designed to sell you a copy of a book you already own. If you buy the hardcover, yeah. you're like, hey, this book is awesome. I love these options. I love these rules. I love these, these new class stuff. I love this adventure. I want to run it. Then you are absolutely going to be pressured to pick up this pay pay again for that same content in DD Beyond because it's so convenient to make use of it. Yeah. Much more convenient than using the actual book in a lot of cases, especially if you're running an adventure, right? Mm-hmm. But from the flip side, the books that you buy on DD Beyond are cheaper than they are in physical. Yeah. So if you imagine a hypothetical person who's like, yeah, you know, I don't really need to own the books right? A person like me who's moved too many times in their life. Yeah. And you're like, I have too many books because the last time I moved, I, you know, there was like a ton, like, you know, six tons of them. Right. right? Um, a person who was just like, yeah, you know what? I don't need the books. I might buy one, one once in a while if it looks cool, but I'm just going to buy my books on D&D Beyond is going to spend less money on the game. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Than they would if they were buying just the books by yeah. themselves. So it's, 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 it's a strange argument for, for this, right. for this piece to be making. Yeah. And, and another thing that I just remembered is on D&D Beyond, where I buy all my books on D&D Beyond now, yep. and I create a campaign and I share it with my players. Yes. And those players now do not need to buy it on D&D Beyond or elsewhere unless they are buying it for non-player content, unless they're, yes. they're buying it for some other reason. Yep. And so that in, in itself is, you know, losing potential money for wizards. Yeah. And, or for D and D Beyond, it's 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 also dare I say it a little bit socialist. I know that's, <laughs> Some, that's somewhat the, ironically right. That's yeah. a hilarious thing. It's like everything that this article, not everything that this article is saying, but some of these points are like. Not only is it not true what you're saying, it's sort of the opposite. Which is which is this one as well. This one blew my mind. Uh, the article says. This was codified during the Wizards of the Coast years when, recognizing the popularity of homebrews, the endless knockoffs of their intellectual property, and the difficulty of enforcing their copyright, TSR released the open gaming license. Well, no, TSR didn't, right? Wizards of the Coast did. Wizards of the Coast did. Right. Uh, This allowed other publishers and creators to release products within defined limits using the D&D framework, but not bound by the company's IP restrictions. While it eventually became just another revenue extraction stream for Hasbro, the OGL pointed out a direction that could have freed the entire tabletop role-playing game hobby from capital's clutches. This is completely wrong. A, TSR didn't do it. Wizards of the Coast did it. B, there is no revenue stream for the open gaming license. If you publish on... uh, dm's guild yes there is a small revenue stream because you're using their intellectual property but to use the open gaming license if you you can use it to make your own 5e based game and wizards of the coast does not get a dime from that yeah you know what i call that scott i call that socialism yes uh (laughs) that was yeah yeah that was my reaction as well i mean i mean the 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 definition of, of 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 socialism is something is something far beyond the 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 purview of this show, I suspect. Oh yeah. But I mean, I'm I'm I, I lean extremely left in terms of my politics. I live in a reasonably socialist country. Uh, certainly not as socialist as, as as many others in Europe. But you know, the 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 baseline 
One of the baseline definitions of socialism is, is the idea that the workers you should control the means of production. Wizards of the Coast, when they created the open gaming license, literally gave away the means of production, yeah. right? It was, right. in my mind, it seemed like a pretty socialist move. Now, the big caveat there, Wizards of the Coast did not do this with that in mind. If you, if you, if you go back and read the articles and the interviews with, with the people who were behind the OGL, they did it from a very capitalist perspective. Mm-hmm. They looked at the market and they said, we can't make enough money doing short adventures and supplements, mm-hmm. right? We make more money doing big hardcover books, big right. you know, like milestone books. So let's just let other people do the stuff that we, that we don't want to make because we can't make enough profit on it. Yeah. Right. It was, it was absolutely a very capitalist, very cavalier approach to what they, you know, to, to doing this and why they wanted to do it. Right. But the outcome from the perspective of the hobby and the industry was absolutely huge and was absolutely not what this article was representing it as. Yeah. Yeah. So I, while I love to, I love getting into the business side of the hobby and, you know, how things are done. And I was hoping this article would like open my eyes to some new things. Yeah. And, and instead I was just like, no. No, yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, I think, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's I mean, anyone who wants to write an article, you know, dragging corporate culture, I'm, I'm here for that. Absolutely. Yep. 100%. Yeah. Anybody who wants to write an article about, you know, Hasbro's missteps, I'm fine with, I mean, Hasbro financed a battleship movie. Right. You know, I mean, you know, Has, you know Hasbro has done a lot of things that they probably should not have done. Hasbro uh, last year was doing NFT stuff. Right. Wasn't on the wizard side, but it kind of it snuck through, and a few people noticed it sort of very far after the fact, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so there is there is there is definitely criticism to be made of Hasbro or or Wizards of the Coast or any company, but this article just seems to not have a strong sense of what actually has gone on with yeah. the brand as a business. There's a bit of a subtext of the piece where it, it seems to be wanting to say it doesn't do this directly, but the idea that the game in its original form, when when Gary Gygax created it, was this more this more egalitarian, more open, more communal sort of a setup. You know, Gygax just mm-hmm. wanted to make a game. He wanted other people to play games. That was it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true at the outset. But it's ironic because within a very short number of years after that, Gary Gygax was the most vocal opponent of anybody doing anything mm-hmm. that was making money off of what he was doing. Right. He was just absolutely frenetic about it. If you're, if you're ever wondering what 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 an internet forum looked like before internet forums existed you can read the letters columns in old dragon magazines where gary gygax would write letters to his own publication Mm -hmm. right and complain about articles that he'd read complain about the players of the game doing it not right complain about the writers in the magazine who that he was publisher of it was just (laughs) it was just the weirdest the weirdest kind of vitriol you know so you know gygax was was absolutely not a person who would have embraced the idea of, of, right. of, you know, what, what this article is trying to say, notwithstanding that the article is not saying it very well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And, you know, the, uh, the book that this article is supposed to be uh, discussing, you know, has a lot of information about missteps that were made through greed, yeah. uh, missteps that were made through trying to make the game something that it wasn't, that it, yes. it couldn't support. Yeah. And, and, you know, in that, in that case, I'm, I'm, like you said, I'm there for that. Right? I'm yeah. there for mistakes that people made and what we might learn from it. So, you know, a very interesting article uh, brings up some good topics. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. It's jackobean.com. Wow. Business aside. Now let's talk about the game. Let's yes. talk about uh, 
how to make fun combats. And I want to thank Merrick Blackman, uh, who on Twitter posted a few thoughts. And I asked him if we could use his thoughts as a springboard for this conversation. So I would like to read uh, Merrick's tweets here. Merrick says, one of the most unsatisfying types of encounters I've experienced in D&D is one where some of the party need to do something, i.e. disarm a trap, while the rest of the party fights in combat. It looks good in action movies, not so much in play. Why is it so unsatisfying? Because it's normally the non-combat tasks boiling down to rolling a die, hoping you roll high, and making no decisions. Or if you make decisions, they're usually extremely trivial. Good games for me involve making non-trivial decisions. But even aside from that, one of the fun things about combat is that you get to do it as a group. You get to help each other. Hey, rogue, disarm this trap while we hold off the monsters just excludes the rogue from the group activity. Some players may enjoy it. I don't. So that that uh, that was the gist of Merrick's uh, series of tweets, and I feel the need to address this because I continually advocate when I talk about it, when I write about uh, game design and encounter design, advocate for putting in non-combat things for people to have to do. Uh, but I really, really respect. Merrick, uh, he has written a lot about running games. He runs a large number of games for a variety of players. Uh, so putting my ego aside, <laughs> I wanted to step back and say, okay, this isn't an attack on anything you've said, Sean. Let's, let's think about this. Let's break down why it might work, why it might not work, beyond just some people like this and some people don't. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great question. Um, I'm very much like you. I do like to set encounters up that way when I'm when I'm writing stuff, when I'm running games, I, I will almost always default to while the fight's going on. Here's what else is going on. Mm-hmm. And here's what the characters need to do in order to deal with it. Right. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, I absolutely I absolutely uh, uh, get that Merrick is 100 percent right in what he's saying. Right. I think there's a there's a baseline issue, which is, which is not the most important part of the discussion, but just to get it out of the way, the idea that some, for, for many players, there are players and characters who enjoy doing non-combat stuff during combat. Okay. You know, I've played with lots of them. I know they exist. I know that they're out there. Um, players who like making skill checks, players who love to solve puzzles, players who love dealing with more abstract environmental threats as opposed to the concrete threats of a monster trying to hit you in the head, mm-hmm. right? For, for all of those sorts of players, this sort of general scenario might not be a problem, okay? Now, having said that, clearly this are, these are not the players that, that Merrick is, is, is playing with, and Merrick is clearly not one of those players, and that's fine, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that all players should just, should just you know, do this and everything will be great. Because at the, at the core of what Merrick is saying is a very, very real problem, which is that combat is a much bigger part of the game, much more complex part of the game than any other aspect of it. And for that reason, combat is easier to make exciting. So we need to talk about how to make the stuff that isn't combat just as exciting as combat is. Right. Right. And, and one thing I'd like to acknowledge too is that th- this sort of, shadows what what scott just said is that care the players create their characters with all these abilities 
and they know they can do this. They chose these things. They love to do these things. So I can definitely understand that there would be players who, when they sat down to do the cool things that they built to do with their character, to have to do something else that isn't as cool as what's on the character sheet can be upsetting. It can feel like it's a downer. I I just, I want to use these spells. I want to use these feats. I want to use these things. I don't want to have to spam stealth checks or arcana checks or what have you yeah and everybody else is doing something cool that they have on their character sheet Um, so what we're going to do as scott mentioned is sort of run through how to make things fun even if it's not your typical rolling a d20 adding your proficiency modifier and your strength bonus and hitting something with a sword really really hard so with that, let's uh, let's jump into discussion. First of all, what are some ways to make combat fun? And what are some things that make combat not fun? Uh, and, and these are just sort of very general things. I talked about these things in, in a series of articles on D&D Beyond a couple years back called Let's Design an Adventure. Um, and I, I broke some of these down, but I think they're, they're good to, to go through again. Uh, First of all, acknowledge that fun for one person is not fun for another. So if we're going through these things and you say, that's not what makes combat fun for me, a thousand apologies. This is just my experience with, you know, maybe 10,000 players over the course of my going to conventions and running for players uh, career. So the first thing is emphasize movement in combat if you can, because even the, the, a need to move from one place to another during a combat can break up the monotony of just die roll, hit or miss, die roll, hit or miss, die roll, hit or miss. Um, it breaks things up a little bit. Uh, any any thoughts on that one? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, mean, I think, I mean, this is, this is really lend, speaks to different ways that people play the game. Right. If you're playing on a tactical map, movement uh, can be a very, very important part of what you're doing. If you're playing theater of the mind, it gets a little bit more abstract and mm-hmm. it may not be as easy to do that. So that's 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 definitely one thing to think about. Right. Mm-hmm. True. Um, I think I think another general thing is, I mean, to, to talk about we should be providing goals other than simply killing enemies. Right. Mm -hmm. The important thing is, though, that that in and of itself isn't enough. I think a lot of DMs get this advice and they may be putting together the types of encounters that Merrick is talking about. Where it's like, while the fight is going on, disable the trap. It takes a successful DC 20 dexterity check using thieves tools. Mm -hmm. I think that in and of itself is not enough. I think there's more stuff that needs to go into thinking about how those how those alternative goals work. Mm-hmm. and how they can best serve sort of what's going on in the fight while sure. the fight is happening, right? Yeah. yeah. And and another caveat on that one is if you set up goals other than just kill the enemy, say the whole reason you're having this encounter is to get the get the the uh, captured townsfolk out of the, the, the prison. Um, to say that's an alternative goal is fine, but what's the simplest way to do that? is to be defeat all the enemies because then you right. can just walk up and yeah. take it take 20 minutes to pick the lock yeah. uh, rather than so if you do that sort of thing uh 
we'll, we'll have other uh, advice about that. But the one big piece of advice is don't have the goal be something where actually killing all the enemies is the easiest way to, to do the goal, regardless of what the goal is. Right. One of my favorite things is, you know, think about your adventures in terms of story beats. Uh, so it's simple combats where it's just run in and do the thing is fine. You just might not want 12 of those in a row. So if it makes sense to have a simple, uh, a simple combat because you're just dealing with some guards, great. When you get to a larger enemy, when you get to a more important point in the story, making it a little bit more complex will emphasize that the, the strategy and the drama and the tension of that combat within the story itself. Uh, so I think it's it's important to, rather than trying to make every combat complex and fun and and different, change it up a little bit. Uh, a cool thing that I've seen done is uh, adding a twist to the combat after a couple of rounds. So you think that it's just a straight up fight against this enemy, but two rounds in, something happens and the goal is is changed. Uh, maybe an even larger threat enters. And so you have to team up with the person you were just fighting against to fight with them to, to take on something, you know, something like that will, will just be different. Uh, it will, my, my biggest fear is monotony in, in yeah. combats. And so that's why I'm, I'm trying to think all, of all of these things. Yeah. I think one thing, one thing about, I think, I, I mean, that's great advice. I love doing that personally myself. Right. The one thing that's tricky about that, especially for a relatively inexperienced DM, is it gets more difficult to judge the difficulty of your encounter mm -hmm. if right. you're reserving some of the some of the foes for later on in the fight. Mm -hmm. So that's a I mean, that's that that goes part in sort of that goes hand in hand with the idea of learning to adjust things within a combat encounter while you're playing mm -hmm. as a DM, which is a very, very valuable skill. Yeah. Um, but definitely as soon as you're at the point where you're comfortable doing that think about mixing the combat up so it's not just here's the starting lineup here's the characters and it's a fight to the finish right. look for look for ways to sort of to to subvert the expectations of the players and the characters in terms of what's going on when the fight starts so that by the time the fight finishes they realize they were actually in a very different combat that they than they had originally envisioned yeah uh yeah and another thing is let the care make combats if you can that let the characters do the things that their characters are good at and that the characters want to do. So if you have the, the pole arm master, right, send hordes of small, uh, easy to defeat enemies at them so they can do their cool things and get, get that satisfaction. And that will make them more likely in the long run to accept combat situations where they might not get the chance to do that, where they might have to make a decision to do something else that is uh, more satisfying than that, the, because they've already got to do the cool thing a few times. Yes, very much so. Yeah. In anything you do in the game, but combats uh, are one of them, always try to marry narrative coolness to mechanical coolness. Uh, so if, if there's something... Uh, 
cool in the story that is surprising or different. If you can make that play out as part of a combat as well, the the story uh, emphasis will heighten the narrative emphasis. The, you know, the mechanical emphasis, the mechanical coolness will uh, be lifted by the narrative coolness and vice versa. Yes. Uh, but I think it's also important to say what makes combat not fun, because I think this is where Merrick's um, point was, is that, you know, trying to do these other things is fine as long as it's fun to do. But if it's not fun, then you're wasting the energy and you are wasting your player's goodwill yeah. as you try to do it. And so let's talk about some things that are not fun. It's not fun when characters don't have choices or are prohibited from doing the cool things that they expect their characters to be able to do. So if you send them into a situation where all they can do is make constitution saving throws or all they can do is attempt sleight of hand checks to fiddle with a puzzle while other things are going on around them, but they have no choice, that's where we get into problems. Uh, I think. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think the, the, the issue of choice and character agency, I think is at the heart of so many of the discussions that we have about the game when we're talking about adventure design in a general sense, right? Do the characters have free choice? Do they have, do they have agency in terms of being able to select the path that they want to go on? When we talk about, you know, adventures that are railroading the characters Mm -hmm. as opposed to adventures that are free form or sandbox, that's that's the heart of that discussion right but it really it 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 also goes down right to the right to the encounter level right in the sense that this is something that fourth edition was quite bad at or something fourth edition did that was not great was the idea that fourth edition was built around these heavy duty tactical encounters the idea that you would have a certain amount of non-combat stuff and then you'd enter a tactical encounter you'd have a certain amount of non-combat stuff you'd enter a tactical encounter the tactical encounter setups were effectively forced right as players, you had absolutely no choice except to engage in this tactical encounter. A really good adventure might give you the option to do some, some diplomacy, try to talk your way out of the fight. Uh, if you were really, really good as players, if you were quite ingenious, you might think of ways to you know, turn the environment to your advantage. Instead of fighting these guys, we're going to start a landslide. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's going to wipe them out. That'll be great, right? But it was not a part of the game. Right. The game was built around the idea of these fixed points of conflict, mm-hmm. right? And even for people who haven't played fourth edition, I think that idea of combat being something that absolutely has to punctuate the game at certain points Mm -hmm. has been a part of the game right from the inception. And that certainly still works its way into fifth edition and certainly most, uh, most pre-written fifth edition adventures. If you're making up your own adventures, it's, it's, it's up to you what you're doing. You know, the rules are entirely yours, but if you're picking an adventure up from Wizards of the Coast or from anybody else, there generally is this expectation that combat is going to be the anchor point of the experience as your characters move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting when I was designing uh, Halls of Undermountain because I got the the sort of mandate from the design team, which was we want to go back, even though this is a fourth edition product and we're used to the one or two page encounter spreads, we want to go back to a more old school way of, of running adventures. So you may just have one kobold in a room right. and you, the players can 
choose to fight that cobalt if they want. They can talk to the cobalt if they want. They can avoid the cobalt if they want. Uh, right? Rather than having this big piece set, there's several rooms in a row with just one or two monsters. And the combats, if they are, if they are had, will probably be quick, but it will still feel like uh, an adventure that the characters are controlling rather than having the design of the game control what the characters can do. Right. Uh, and, you know, so a, a lot of it is the game trains players to emphasize combat. And yes. if the game trains them to do it, that's going to be the hammer that they pick up no matter what uh, tool yeah. is, is best called for. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think, I mean, the, the question about sort of answering, answering Merrick's question, I think is really going to come down to thinking about the role that combat plays in the game and thinking about ways to thinking about ways to elevate the other aspects of the game so that it feels more like combat, not necessarily mechanically though, but narratively Mm -hmm. so that the other aspects of the game can address the same, address the same needs on, on the part of the characters and the players that combat presently addresses because right now combat addresses those needs better than I think any of the other mechanical aspects of the game does. Yeah. 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 I want to talk about one more, uh, two more things that make a combat not fun, especially if you're trying to add sort of an exploration or role-playing or, you know, skill check, ability check sort of thing to a combat. Uh, If you do that, if there is something that characters need to deal with, in the dragon's lair while the dragon is attacking. Yeah. Don't make it something that is the same check that needs to be made over and over again, especially if it's a single check, because what happens with players in those cases, who's got the highest blank, who's got the highest arcana. All right. We need to do this every round. So guess what? You have the highest arcana. You're going to be the one that does it every round. Make it something that anyone could be able to do reasonably well. So it becomes a more tactical part of the game than it is a, it's obvious who needs to do this. So you go do it. And that's all you're going to be able to do for this round. Uh, If it's, if it's done well, like I said, it's something that might need to be done, but there's a variety of ways to do it that can be tactically discussed and handled by any character rather than just one. Right. And there I've noticed also a tendency of if there is something else that needs to be done during a combat, right? Designers try to say something like as a bonus action, any character can make this check. Yeah. And that's not what the game is meant to be. Uh, Bonus actions are something that characters get. It's not something that, abilities should be or tasks should be assigned to yeah now i understand that that desire to do it because it still lets a character take an action so you can say all right as a bonus action you can deal with the glyph that's dealing damage to everyone and then as your action you can do whatever you want to do to make that valid what i would say is just make it a no action to, mm-hmm. to do it Uh, because then the character can still have their whole thing, but there's still this other focus to do. And you can even make it a choice. You can say, you can do it as no action, but you're at disadvantage to make the check. Sure. If you use your full action, 
you're not going to be able to attack the monsters, but you can attempt it normally. Um, and, you know, the final thing is make it make sense with the story. If yes. it doesn't make sense with the story and if it's just uh, this is something I wanted to throw in to complicate the game, uh, the players realize that. And there's yeah. no good story reason for them to have this thing here. I was working on this adventure that was supposed to be a sequel to Return of the Lizard King. And I just, I rate, made this high level thing that it was all about this. And it just was, was so bad. It was so bad because I was trying to force it. Right. And so I just had to scrap the entire thing and say, there's no story reason for this to happen. This is me yeah. trying to be clever and it's not working. Yeah. 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 If I were just, just as an aside, if I ever, if I ever write an autobiography detailing my experience editing fifth edition, it will be titled bonus actions. Don't do what you think they do. Because <laughs> um, this is, this is, this is something that, that crops up an awful lot yeah. in the game for some reason. But yeah. I think, I think everything you've said is, is, is absolutely bang on. I mean, talking about, talking about the idea of, of narrating, of, 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 of marrying narrative coolness to mechanical coolness, talking about making sure that there's a reason for these things to be happening within within the within the story of the game, I think that's that's really the answer to what Merrick is asking mm-hmm. on a conceptual level. Mm-hmm. The tricky part is figuring out how to turn that conceptual level into something you can actually put into play in the adventures you're writing or at the table. Yep. Especially if you're at the table and you can see, oh, great, I've got you know this adventure that I'm doing. Maybe it's an AL thing or something that something that you picked up. You know, it's 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 it needs a couple of characters to not engage in the fight to do some skill checks. And I've got this this group across from me who absolutely hate that. You know, mm-hmm. I know that from personal experience. Yep. How do I get through this? Right. I think thinking about this this issue, the the thing that pops into my head most often is the idea that. We need to think of how to frame non-combat challenges so they feel more like combat challenges. Mm-hmm. But we don't need to do that in a mechanical sense. We need to do that in a narrative sense. I think okay. the idea of trying to make non-combat challenges feel more like combat mechanically, I think that ship has kind of sailed. Mm. You know, fifth edition, for better or for worse, is a game that focuses so much on combat. We talk about the three pillars of fifth edition, but combat, combat is the combat is the load bearing pillar at the center of the room, (laughs) right? Exploration and role playing are like the little sort of ornate things on the side that you put a vase on top of, right? This is, this is how the rules of the game are for better or for worse, right? Right, right. If you wanted to write a bunch of uh, house rules for, for making skill checks more interesting and more complex and have, you know, have uh, lots of abilities that would feed that you could certainly do that. But if you're just talking about wanting to play stock fifth edition, um, the issue, I think, is that non-combat challenges will always feel so different from combat, which is a standard challenge of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, because making a single skill check to do something feels like a really, really dull fight. Mm-hmm. Imagine a combat encounter where everybody was fighting and you just say, okay, everybody, you know, you're fighting this, you're fighting that. You, the one character, you're going to fight this one foe. I'm not going to tell you their hit points. I'm not going to let you use any of your special abilities. Your sword's magic doesn't matter, okay? All of your, 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 your battle master stuff doesn't matter. If you're a paladin, you're not smiting this guy, okay? You're just going to make an attack roll, and if you get one successful attack, that foe will fall over and be incapacitated, right? right? That's effectively what you're doing when you pull one character out and say, okay, you've got to unlock the door. You've got to, you've got to disable the trap, right? And the problem with this is that that doesn't feel like much fun, right? Like if you're saying, you know, I'd, I'd rather be 
doing the combat that everybody else is doing, Mm -hmm. right? Where I've got more stuff going on. And the reason for that is that combat has all of the options in the game, Mm -hmm. right? With combat, when you're talking about story, combat drives story with the mechanics, Mm -hmm. okay? Uh, you have so many different options for combat. When a combat starts, your first option is, am I using my ranged weapon or my melee weapon? If I'm using my melee weapon, am I charging in or am I going to try to stealth up? If I'm using my ranged weapon, am I going to try to hide first, right? Is that going to give me some advantage or not? Am I going to try to focus on the boss or am I going to snipe at the people who themselves are trying to snipe from the sides of the combat Mm because they don't want to get into melee? Once you're engaged in combat, you've got all of these options. I've got all these class features. Which ones am I going to reserve for the mooks? Which ones am I going to save for the boss, right? Um, I've got this one thing I can do it once per day. Is is this the fight I'm going to use it in? Or do I want to save it because I think there might be another fight coming up? I've got magic. My sword can do this once a day. Am I going to use it now? Do I want to save it for later? Every choice you make when you're talking about combat, when you're thinking about those things, drives the narrative of the combat. The narrative of the fight is going to come out a certain way based on the choices that all the different characters make when they're doing that, right? But with ability checks, there's basically just one mechanic, roll high. Yeah. It's like, can I do? No, (laughs) just roll high. What if I, no, roll high. Yep. Right, and that's it. And the narrative that gets built by that is so absolutely flat that it's no surprise that for folks like Merrick and the players in Merrick's game, they're not getting anything out of that. Yeah. Right? And, and it's even, it's even worse because if you, even as the game master, if you do want to do something different, you don't have any options to do that. Right? Yeah. Even if you say, you know, this, this uh, thieves tools check to, uh, to disarm the trap. If it, what if I do it this way? Well, okay. You have advantage. Yes. Or you have disadvantage. And and that's it, right? That's yeah. all you can do. And you can try to gamify it. Like I talked about with, if you want to use your action, you can do it regularly. If you want to do it as a free action, you have disadvantage. You know, that gamifies it, but it only gamifies it a tiny bit. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, so the, the tools you have as the game master are are limited as well. Yeah, I think I th- and I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the solution to that is to not try to gamify it. Right. To recognize that trying to gamify it, to try and find a mechanical solution to this mechanical problem, the problem that 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 skill uh, that ability checks in five E are, are are just sort of this basic pass fail, you succeed or you don't, maybe you have advantage, maybe you don't scenario. Mm-hmm. Trying to find a way to fix that with the mechanics is not going to work because the mechanics are set up exactly the way the mechanics want to be set up. Mm-hmm. Ability checks in 5e are meant to be very straightforward, very simple, right? The limited palette of skills, the way that skills, you know, tie to ability checks, the way that oh, we don't, lots of people still say skill check, but you don't make a skill check in 5e, right. you make an ability check. And that, that fundamental difference between this version of the game and previous versions of the game that used skills speaks a lot to how skills are meant to be used in 5e, right? Yep. The solution, I think, if you're going to ignore the mechanics, is to start with the narrative side of things, Mm -hmm. right? So for non-combat challenges, you want to start with the story that you want to tell within this encounter and then fit that story somehow to the simpler mechanical setup, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, And the easiest way to do that is to try to make the non-combat challenges dynamic, I think, as, as, as you were talking about earlier. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're trying to, 
probably the classic example is there's a trap in the room while the fight's going on, you have to disable the trap, okay? If you're disabling the trap, if the trap is just like, if it's a simple thing, like there's a trap here, we need to get out of the room and you've got to disable the trap so we can go, that's a pretty flat scenario and there's not much you can do with that. If the trap is itself interacting with the rest of the room, okay, that's potentially more interesting. Because if the trap is interacting with the other characters, your character is suddenly in a position to determine how that happens or to try to keep that, to, to try to keep that interaction from, from, from dealing as much damage or from complicating the fight in the wrong ways. Right. Yeah. Um, for simpler scenarios, something like, like opening a, opening a, a locked door. Okay. That's, you know, kicking it open or, or, or picking the lock probably for this example, you know, there, there's not much you can do that, in terms of the mechanics, you can have a tough lock, you can have an easy lock, right? Maybe the lock is broken. So you've got a, you know, you've got disadvantage on the check. That's about it. But think about something like I need to open the lock on this door and this door is dripping with green slime. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. When you approach that as a player, your first thing is not what's my, you know, what's my bonus on, on my dexterity check with thieves tools. The first thing that comes to your mind is how do I do this without getting hit by green slime? Right. Right. So, it's the same scenario. You need to get a door unlocked, but your focus as a player and, and as a character is on how do I do this? Mm-hmm. Not what am I going to roll? Yeah. yeah. Right. The idea that like, like as long, as long as the, the, the narrative challenges that you're going to throw into something like that are not insurmountable, as long as there's a couple of quick and easy possible solutions, you talked about making sure that any actions like that, there's different things you could do. Mm-hmm. Right. As long as there's a few things there that, that, that the player can immediately pick up on, okay, I'm going to take my cloak and I'm going to try to like hammer a couple of spikes in and nail it over top of the nail it over top of the door. Right. So I'm going to sacrifice my cloak. The green slime is going to get that, but that's going to give me a round or two to, to get at the lock safely before the cloak starts to dissolve. Right. Yeah. Um, somebody at the other side of the party's got a decanter of endless water. I'm going to hose this thing down. Right. Yeah. But I've got to get that magic item first. Do I go to them? Do they come to me? They can throw it across the room. I have to catch it. What if it drops? Right. Yeah. Lots of scenarios there. Lots of possible choices. Yeah. And when you start to get into choices, then you start to create um, you start to create a challenge that maybe feels a little bit more like the challenge that's going on in the combat yeah. that everybody else is dealing with. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I just I just thought of something that it's sort of the same problem from the other direction, which is if we come up to that door that has the green slime dripping on it and there's no combat going on, that non-combat scenario is, is boring. Yeah. So you, not only can you spice up combat with these other things, combat emphasis or elevates those other things as well. So it's not, well, we'll just take 20 minutes and burn all the green slime off the door. Yeah. Now the, the challenge is done. It's yeah. the timing of it. It's the what's going on around it. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's a great a great way to look at it in both directions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ticking clock makes makes everything more interesting. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you've got choices to make. That's that's really what it comes down to is, is like if there's if there's only one way to do something. Mm-hmm. Right. Then you figure out that one way and it's it's a minor distraction, but it doesn't create the kind of engagement and the kind of agency with a character that we want the game to have at all times. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess one way to think about it would be like any anytime you're running a game as a DM and you 
here in your mind, you hear yourself saying, roll a such and such check. Okay. Mm -hmm. If it's possible every single time that happens to instead frame the question as how do you want to roll this such and such check? Right. Right. How do you want to do this? Right. You know what the check is, you know what your skill modifier is, but you have to decide how you're going to actually apply that in some way. And like you said, it's, it's, it's harder to do it outside of combat, you know, in fourth edition skill challenges were a thing that kind of did that. I know you've talked about skill challenges endlessly on the show as one should, because they were a cool mechanic that is much maligned. Um, but in combat, the rules are different in combat. You've got that ticking clock, you've got the time pressure, you've got, well, just being in combat means you might accidentally take, you know, a stray arrow in the back of the head while you're trying to do this skill challenge, having, having ever present threats around you raises raises the threat level raises the adrenaline and can make you know relatively mundane tasks feel more interesting Mm -hmm. but you've still got to have the choice there you've still got to have a certain amount of agency in terms of letting the character figure out what they want to do right one other thing that's very easy to do and easy to think about is when you want to set up non-combat challenges in a combat encounter just figure out ways to tie the non-combat challenge into the combat challenge Right. Um, if you got a scenario um, where you're working with a magical trap, mechanical traps don't uh, don't work so well with this because their their effects are often more limited. But well, actually, not necessarily something like an arrow trap that, that repeats. It's got you got like a, a repeating crossbow with a 100 bolt mag hidden behind a wall or something like that. Right. Um, imagine that the DM tells the character you need to make three three successful checks to disable this, this trap. And the reason you need to do it right now in combat is because the trap is shooting at your allies. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's not just a matter of saying, okay, I guess I have to do this because I don't want my allies to get hit by this arrow trap or this Eldritch blast trap or what have you. Right. But what if every time you succeed on one of those three checks, you get to direct one of the arrows or right. one of these bolts of Eldritch power at one of your enemies. Mm-hmm. Right. Figure out some way to tie what's going on with the check into the overall fight. So even if I'm not, you know, I'm a rogue, it's like, I'd really rather be sneak attacking. But hey, I just Eldritch blasted some guy, you know, for 4d10 damage. That was pretty sweet, too. Yeah. Right. Because that's something I don't normally get to do. Um, Having a trap or a hazard fight back is a really easy thing to do. This, This can often get into environmental stuff more than just the actual function of the trap or hazard. Uh, something as mundanely mechanical as um, there's a rope bridge going across like a river of lava and it needs to be, if the ropes are falling apart, one really strong person in the party needs to go over and make a couple of DC 20 strength athletics checks to lash these ropes together. Otherwise, when you hit the bridge, it's just going to collapse, right? So you got the fighter who's like, ah, oh, you know, I don't, you know, I'd rather be smashing things, but I guess I got to do this because I've got the, I got the thing. Make, make that check a bit of a challenge as well. As you're trying to do this, you're dealing with gouts of lava kind of flying past you, right? So you're, you're trying to do this at the same time that you're trying to avoid taking damage. Maybe that's enough to make it interesting, right? For the person who's doing it. Um, an example, if you, this, this actually came up just uh, recently in, in a game that I'm running. If you're uh, on a boat in a storm, stormy seas or something like that, and you got, you know, like one character has to go and do the tiller, otherwise the boat's going to capsize, right? So everybody draws straws like, okay, who wants this really boring, boring thing, right? Let the person who's at the tiller watch the combat and sort of time how they crank the tiller just every time to send the boss prone, mm-hmm. right? Maybe, you know, maybe give the boss a saving throw, maybe just let the person at the tiller do it automatically, 
because that's a really cool thing to be able to do from this otherwise mundane activity, right? So they're watching the fight. They're watching the Paladin, the boss go back and forth. And they're just, yeah, I think right now, right? And suddenly the boss goes, you know, on their back because they didn't see that the ship was about to lurch in the wrong direction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that's a great idea. And I think as a designer or the game master, if you're running your own content, you can come up with those things, but also let the player come up with something cool with yeah. that, with that, grab the, you know, grab the tiller thing. Um, yeah. You know, say, you know, you, you're doing this and it's taking some, some things, but is there something you would like to try to do based yeah. on this situation? And if they come up with something cool, right, roll with it, let them, let them do it either automatically succeeding on it or making a check to to do so absolutely yeah and the thing that i found because i do this a lot in in my own games i like i like to make i like to make skill checks i like to make skill checks feel vibrant right Mm -hmm. what i found that as a dm once you start to suggest these things once you start to say hey if you know while you're while you're you know doing the tiller while you're disarming this trap while you're you know searching for the secret door because you've got to get out of this room before this this killer construct kills everybody because you can't you absolutely cannot defeat it right while you're doing that you can also do this other thing mm-hmm. you know as, as as part of what you're doing once you start making those suggestions the players will start to come in with their own once you establish that that's the baseline mm-hmm. that's the kind of game you want to run that's the kind of encounters you like to see and that's the kind of narrative first approach that you want to take in a combat encounter they will start coming up with those ideas more spontaneously and more naturally on their own because it becomes you know this is an example of giving giving the players the opportunity to define brand new cool actions for their characters to do Mm -hmm. because everybody knows what cool actions they can do based on what's on their character sheet coming up with something different you know whether it's you know like hopping on the chandelier to swing across the room in an actual combat scenario it's like oh okay you know i'll give you your charge I'll pretend that you're charging, right? So I'll give you advantage when you when you land on the guy, right? Mm-hmm. After 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 doing that, you know, you can do those sorts of things that aren't tied to combat too. You can you can let the players come up with cool things to do in a non-combat sense. Sure. Uh, and and if you give them that challenge, most of them are up to it. Yeah. In, in your experience, you know, writing, running, and editing adventures, what is the what's your thought on sort of partial success as opposed to pass-fail binary checks? I absolutely love partial success. My game, the game that I run, um, which is not, not D&D, but it's a, similar, it's, it's a game built around D&D, um, the, I've, I've got that hardwired into the system. Right. Because I've always loved that idea. You can do it in 5e, just, you know, like it's not even a house rule. It's just like, just treat things this way. Mm-hmm. Right. Don't think about things in terms of pass fail. Lots of people talk about this. Um, it, it, it shows up on Twitter a lot. Um, the way that I see it is that when you roll a die to make an ability check, the die roll doesn't, shouldn't tell you whether you succeed or fail. It should tell you how well you succeed or how poorly you succeed. Mm-hmm. right <clears throat> excuse me um it's just it's it's just a matter of just just you know if you if you if you almost make a dc if it's a dc 15 check to do something and you get a 13 okay saying okay you failed that you need to try it again next time that's one of the things that leads to the scenario that merrick is talking about mm-hmm. where it's like okay i gotta make the same check and uh, make it again i'm gonna make it again you know and that gets tedious really really fast if you get the 13, you're like, okay, you partially succeed, right? So you might want to dictate that as a DM. You can say, if this is a, if this is a, a check to, to, to disarm a trap, 
Okay. It might be, okay, you succeed on the check, but the trap is going to deal you a little bit of damage. Mm-hmm. Right. It could be something like you succeed on the check, but the trap is going to hit one of your, one of your opponents. If it's a, if it's like a ranged attack trap. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you stick with that idea, if you do something like um, saying that you need three successful checks to disarm this trap, instead of that being the end all. Okay. So it's like, okay, I pass, I fail, I succeed, I fail. If you say instead you need three checks to disarm the trap and based on the result of those checks, good things might happen or bad things might happen. Mm-hmm. And especially if you then say to the player, you get to tell me what the good and the bad things are. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Based on your own sense of the character and based on what's happening in the fight around you. The example from early, if you got like a ranged attack trap, whether it's an arrow trap or a or like a magical trap blasting, you know, bolts of bolts of arcane force around. Uh, let's say that if you do like, like if you fail the check, then um, that failure will send an attack at a random creature. Okay. So maybe it hits one of your allies. Maybe it hits an enemy. If it hits an enemy, you're like, Hey, everybody's like, Hey, good job. And you're like, yeah, that was great. Even though you, you know, <laughs> technically failed the check. Right. If you accidentally hit one of your allies, you can be yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. You know, I'll try to do better next time. Right. It's, it, it's, it's a tiny little bit of narrative frippery, mm-hmm. but it is, you know, it's, it, it helps to build, you know, the story of what's going on. Uh, let's say that if you get a success on it, and this can be even something like, you know, you know, relatively close to success, right? Um, it sends an attack at an enemy. You get to direct the attack with a little bit more finesse, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, if, it's, if it's a success that isn't, like, if it's a 13 and you need a 15, maybe it goes toward the enemy, but there's disadvantage on the attack roll, or the enemy has advantage on their saving throw if they're making a save against the effect. And if you get a major success, like if you need a 15 and you get a 22 or something, you can say, okay, not only do I direct it towards the enemy, but the attack roll for the trap has advantage or the enemy has disadvantage on their saving throw. Right. You can make all of these things easily dynamic by getting away from the pass fail mechanic that's hardwired into not just fifth edition, but all, all versions of the game that have used skill checks. This has been pretty absolute. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that extends from the old, like, like saving throws have always been pass fail, right. Mm-hmm. There's never been like a, like a, like a, like a, a scale of how well you succeed right. on, a, on a save or not. It's, it's a clear cut thing, yeah. but moving away from that for, for ability checks in particular mm-hmm. can really help to open up the narrative options of the game. Yeah. And when you're talking about opening up the narrative options of the game, I think you are potentially addressing the question that Merrick is bringing up, which is mm-hmm. how do I make ability checks more interesting? Yeah. Answer is, Try to make them narrative. Let the narrative drive the check rather than the other way around, mm-hmm. you know, and just you know, see what happens. See how that feels at your table. See how the players like it. See if it's something they embrace. Yeah. Uh, and if it is, then you've got the potential for building more exciting combat encounters because you can create scenarios within that which are not combat challenges, but which are just as interesting and exciting narratively for the players as the combat is. Absolutely. Wow. That That was... That was everything that I was hoping for and more that discussion. So thank you to Merrick for uh, allowing us to, to speak to his comments and thank you, Scott, for sharing your uh, expertise with us on that. More than welcome. And and thank you to our listeners out there for, uh, for putting up with our nonsense here at Mastering Dungeons. Uh, Thank you to our patrons too. If you would like to become a patron of the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash MMP. Well, Scott, you have admirably filled Teos's uh, canoe-sized shoes. So thank awesome you. Awesome to hear it. Thank for, you. For being that. Uh, if, oh. if people want to follow you on social media or check out your work, 
Where can they do that? Um, you can find me on Twitter as Scott F. Gray. Uh, you can also look at my woefully needing to be updated website, which is at insaneangel.com. Uh, there's contact information there and a list of stuff I've worked on and things like that. Mm-hmm. What about your, uh, your updated version of the Three Musketeers? Oh, yeah, the updated version of Three Musketeers, which is not on my website yet. That's part of the woefully needing to be updated. Um, I think it's the pinned, I think it's still the pinned tweet uh, on my Twitter. So if you if find me on Twitter, you can see that. Yeah, this was a book that I worked on last year with the incredible artist Avivor. Uh, took the original, one of the original translations of the Three Musketeers, one of the earliest English translations, and gave it a complete updating. Uh, just polished the language, made it cleaner, filled out some sections of the story that needed to be filled out, dealt with some continuity stuff, and accidentally turned half of the characters into not white men and half of the characters into not straight men. And so it's a it's a fun, rollicking, extremely diverse um, uh, look at that particular period, that, that at that particular story, which has always been one of my favorites. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, definitely check it out. All right. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. You can also leave comments on our homepage at misdirectedmark.com or on our YouTube channel. You can follow the podcast at Mastering D&D. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So Scott, we have now figured out how we can add cool things to combats or make non-combat things cooler. And what are we going to do now? Well, I think what we're going to do is some of us are going to go kill some monsters uh, while other people in the party engage in non-combat challenges in exciting and dynamic ways. That might be what Tails is doing right now. (laughs) We can hope.